You're listening to the film podcast about indie filmmaking and big budget films with award-winning filmmaker Craig Newland. And welcome to another episode of the Film Podcast. We're featuring another film director who's got a large body of work behind him. He has directed people like Eddie Murphy, Richard Gere, Diane Keaton, John Cusack, Jane Fonda, Sean Connery, Sharon Stone, Francis McDormand, Glenn Close, and Tommy Lee Jones. He's also had four films nominated for the Cannes Palm d'Or. Bruce Beresford, welcome to the film podcast. Thank you. Great to have you on. And I should also mention that you were a two-time nominee for Academy Awards as well. So, boy, you've been busy, haven't you, over the years? Yes. If I hadn't been making films, I don't know what I would have done. Was there a plan B? No, never. So you were always confident that you were going to somehow get to storytelling? Yes. I mean, I wanted to, I think I wanted to be a film director from the time I was in primary school. I used to look at films on Saturday afternoon matinees and think, that's what I want to do. I want to tell stories. Yeah, well, you've certainly managed to do that. Now, Bruce, I wanted to start off, before we start really diving deep into your filmography, there's this really nice story which I think our filmmaker audience are going to appreciate. You were in an audience at an Alfred Hitchcock Q&A, and I think that you managed somehow to get under the skin of Mr. Hitchcock by asking him a question. Firstly, could you set up the scene of where this was and when, and how you came to be there, and tell us the story as you can remember with you and the audience asking this question. Well, it was in the mid-60s, and uh, I was in London, and at that time there were some various groups that used to have visiting director. They'd show a film and they'd have a question and answer session with the audience, and I used to go to a number of them. There was one with John Frankenheimer, there was one with Ruben Mamoulian, and there was the one with Hitchcock, which was at a, a viewing theatre in Wardour Street in London. And they showed the film. It was Marnie, I think. I'm pretty sure it was Marnie. At the end of it, there was sort of, you know, a lot of applause. And then there were questions asked. I put my hand up and I stood up. I said, Mr. Hitchcock, there's a scene at a dock and there's boats in the dock. And it looks terribly fake to me. It looks to me like it's all done in a studio. It doesn't look real. And I said, didn't you want it to look real? <laughs> and he said, um, who are you, sir? <laughs> and I said, oh, my name's Bruce Beresford. <laughs> he said, you're a film buff, I suppose. He was very, very sarcastic. And I said, yes, I suppose I am. And he said, well, let me tell you, Mr. Beresford. He said that a real audience not an audience of film buffs, but a real audience will be completely convinced that that setting was real. And of course, the audience, they were cowed into submission. But I knew that everyone in that audience agreed with me, not him. What did you make of Hitchcock as the man in that moment? He was almost <laughs> like the headmaster talking down to the schoolboy. I suppose I was rather arrogant. I mean, when I asked the question, I genuinely was interested in why he, it didn't worry him that the, that the background and everything looked painted. It didn't look real. I thought, well, probably this is intentional, and he would explain it. I never expected him to say, oh, it did look real. And what about the rest of the audience? Were they like, oh. 
when you I said think they were a bit taken aback at his um his sarcasm but nobody actually stood up and said well we think that this question was interesting nobody did that nobody was game <laughs> he was a very he was very much a bossy boots <laughs> <laughs> and did the experience taint the way that you viewed Alfred Hitchcock the man differently to Hitchcock the filmmaker not really. I mean, I'm not surprised that someone of my age standing up and saying that he probably found it a bit offensive. I mean, he found it offensive because he couldn't understand that someone would not think it looked good and real. I didn't go on to say it, but you see, I very much felt, and I still feel, that the films he did in England in the 30s were more interesting than the films he made in America. They had a very hard edge to them. I thought they were very gripping. The stories were more believable. But the American films, some of them are okay. I never thought they were as good. That was your follow-up question when he put you in your place. <laughs> that, was the, that was the follow-up to say, well, I thought the 30s were better than, you know. Yes, I don't think he wanted to get involved in the long conversation with you. <laughs> no, he would have ejected you at that point. Yeah, it would have been over. <laughs> So you didn't go to film school? There weren't any, really, in Australia. And I, I went to England when I graduated from Sydney University. And I did apply. There was one in England. I did apply oh, scholarship. And there was one. Uh, anyway, I didn't get it. I was one of the last two. They called me in. There was a, a Finnish girl. Anyway, she got it. Look, I want to talk about storyboarding and seeing scenes in relationships to one another because you are a big storyboarder. The ability to globally across a script see how the rhythm and the tone of the scenes are working with all of the other scenes. It's obviously very important for you to storyboard for that reason to make sure that everything is fitting globally across the script and the piece. Yes, you're quite right. I mean, I storyboard it because I may not storyboard it if the films were shot in sequence, but they never are. If I storyboard it, I, then I know I get a good sense of what the film will be like for the audience because they, they're not going to watch it scene by scene. They're going to watch 90 or 100, 110 minutes. And if I storyboard it, I get a good sense of how the scenes counterpoint one another how the visually I should handle each one. So quite often, I mean, like when I was shooting Tender Mercies, for example, I remember getting a call from the studio and they said, oh, in that scene, why don't you do some close-ups during the dialogue instead of doing it all in a wide shot? And they said, you've got close-ups in other scenes. And I said, yes, I have, but I don't want them in this scene. And they said, oh, why not? And I said, you won't really understand why not until you see the whole film. It's the whole film that counts. Nobody's going to sit down and watch just a scene running a minute and a half. And I said, you will see when you see the whole film that the scene we're talking about being done in a wide shot is much more dramatically effective than doing it in close-ups. And I remember talking to John Gilbert, the editor of Hacksaw Ridge on the podcast, about this very thing that you're talking about because often you can watch a scene and it completely smashes it out of the park. It's a fantastic scene, but it might not be working with the rest of the piece. So it's working in isolation to the rest of the film. And that's almost like watching two different movies, isn't it? Yes, it can happen terribly easily unless you're very careful. This is why quite often you get films where, you know, they all get excited about them, then they put them together and then they go back and do reshoots because there's sections that don't work. 
Also, I've never worked, well, except for Double Jeopardy, I've never really worked on big budgets. You know, I've never been able to say, well, we're going to need extra days or we, we need some more time or can we have another week or can we have this or that or can I go and reshoot that? I've never been able to reshoot anything. Yeah, so the storyboard is really minimising the risk of that happening, having scenes that just don't work. So Yes, that doesn't mean that I think everybody should do it. For me, it works. It helps me a lot. I've never been on a set with another director, so I don't know what they do. But cameramen like Peter have told me that other directors are much better just saying, oh, let's do this, let's do that. They're better at the spur of the moment inspiration, whereas for me it's working it out beforehand. I remember on Tender Mercies, Robert Duval used to nearly go crazy saying to me, you've worked it all out already, you've worked it all out. And I said, yes, I have. And he said, well, why can't we make it up as it goes along like there's, um, you know, like some, some of the English new wave directors? And I said, well, I, I just can't work that way. And can you explain to our filmmaker audience about the way in which, Bruce, you balance the shots throughout the whole storyboard pricing? Because I'm genuinely interested in it because I'm somebody that I can't storyboard. I'd like to, but it's, it's just something I can't do. It doesn't fit in my brain for some reason. So can you just explain the balancing, the way that you're able to balance those shots throughout the process of storyboarding? Well, it's just a matter really. Don't get the feeling that my storyboards are beautiful drawings. They're very rudimentary drawings in a frame, which is the picture frame. It's an anamorphic uh, rectangular box. And then I position the people or I position close-ups or I do over the shoulders. All the drawings are there. I, I can tell from that, you know, if I have one scene and it's all shot very close and then the next scene's also shot very close, I know that's not going to work. They've got to counterpoint one another. I saw a film recently that had very good reviews and I noticed in it you could never tell when the scenes had changed. The dialogue, suddenly you'd think, that dialogue's very strange. And then it would take a little while to realise it was the same characters talking in a different place. They'd moved, but you never knew because the director kept shooting it exactly the same. <laughs> okay. And clearly you're an actor's director, given that six actor nominations for best Oscar performances with films that you've directed, that doesn't happen by chance. So what is the way that you cultivate, harness and nurture an actor's performance on set because you're clearly engaged with the actor? Well, I think a lot of, a lot of that with the awards and things for actors is really because you've casted well in the first place. I mean, casting is really the key. If you cast the wrong actor for the role, and that often happens because quite often finance people will insist that you use actor A instead of some other actor you might want. And then you, it's often a bit of a struggle to make it work. And sometimes I've withdrawn from films because the actors that studios wanted me to use, I felt I can't make it work with them. And I didn't do them. I just said, no, I'm not going to direct it. So the casting is the key factor. I spend a long time casting, even for the smallest roles, and making sure that they're exactly right all along the line. You are absolutely right. Casting is so critical, as we know. Now, I remember talking to Francois Girard, the Canadian film director, and we were talking about casting, and this is what he said. The contribution of a director to a movie, 50% 
of the impact a director has on the movie is choosing the actors and everything else, every, everything else you do over two years, over three years, over one year uh, is the other half. The human beings you bring in front of the camera, just choosing them, picking them, putting them together is essentially the greatest impact that you will ever have over the piece. That notion grows in you as you grow older. You realize the good picks you've done, you realize your past mistake and the more you go, each new film, like you know, you know, you have to get that right. If that's not right, nothing else will be right. Isn't that so true? That's exactly right. If it's not cast flawlessly, it'd be very hard to make it work. And I think there are a lot of directors, as you say, even the very small parts you are putting the spotlight on, because you don't want false performances to just suddenly be peppered throughout you know, a film with these small little bit parts if they're not cast right. No, and that can happen easily. And, you know, I often spend an enormous amount of time having people read for me. Often it's just a matter of talking to them and getting a sense of their personality, of what they're like. And then I think, I can use this guy, I can exploit this bit, or I can, this woman has got an interesting look, or she has a, a, a funny reaction to things that I, intrigues me, that I think it would be good in the film. And often I'll do that, and I'll just say, look, I want that one and that one and that one. A lot of these films that you've done, they're not big budget films, and it's even more important to get the, the casting right. So just for our audience, give me a sense of, Somebody comes into the room, like when you are casting and maybe you've said, yes, I'm going to use this person. How much are you able to work before you actually get into the production side, like doing these workshops? Do you do that with the actors? Not really. When I started directing films, I thought rather naively that it would be a good idea to have long rehearsal periods, like three or four weeks. But I very, very quickly changed my mind because in a film, a take of even a minute, two minutes is very long. And you can always just say stop. And then you go back, you talk to them and say, what I'm trying to get out of the scene is such and such and a certain emotion. And we haven't got that yet. And what I want you to do is to think about it this way or to think about that. And we'll get that moment. You can do it like that with film because it's built up a bit by bit by bit. Provided you've got a clear idea in your head which is consistent of what it should be, you can do it like that. It's not a play. You don't need to rehearse for four weeks. I don't want to do that. I didn't rehearse Driving Miss Daisy for four weeks. I think we had a day just reading it through. But always when I'm casting, I like to meet the actors. I want them to have read the script by the time I met them. Then I want them to talk to me about the script so then I get a clear sense of what they understand about the character they're being asked to play. And sometimes if their take on it is interesting, it's very encouraging. Sometimes you find they have no idea at all. And sometimes you find they didn't bother to read it, in which case I wouldn't bother to cast them. <laughs> but quite often they've read the script, they'll have something interesting to say, and then they will talk about it. When I met Tommy Lee Jones for Double Jeopardy, I met him, I had to drive, go down to Austin where he lived in Texas. He memorised the whole thing. Didn't matter what scene I mentioned, he could just come out with the dialogue because he wanted to do it and he was professional. Yeah, it surprises me just how many actors do not know how to deliver their scene. The impression I get sometimes is that they've read through it very casually, they've kind of waltzed on in there thinking that they'll wing it on the day 
and it's exposed. You can pick up on it straight away. Yes. And you usually find too, I mean, a lot of those actors that you mentioned at the start of this that I'd worked with who were very famous, I've often found that the more famous they are, the easier they are to work with. And of course, one of the reasons that they are that famous is that they're adaptable and collaborative. You know, Bruce, I'm a big fan of an actor's reaction to dialogue. Sometimes the reaction is more powerful to me than the dialogue being delivered from the opposite direction. And I think that this is an area that you really work on a lot with that aspect of actors in your films. No, you're right. I've often said to actors, it's often as interesting to watch someone thinking as talking And I've said to the actor who may have little or no dialogue in the scene, I said, remember, your reactions are as important as what he or she is saying. And I said, and I can tell straight away from the look in your eyes if you're only waiting for a cue for your line. And I said, that doesn't work. I said, the involvement has to be total. You have to be completely in the moment when someone else is talking. And um, that's when you get an actor like Duval. He could listen as interestingly as anyone could talk. So when you're editing it, you can see every emotion, although nothing would be on his face even, but you could feel the emotion just from something that he radiated. Yeah, it's pretty powerful when these actors get that right. That That's for sure. And our indie filmmakers will love to hear this experience because, as you've mentioned, you've done a lot of films on indie-type budgets. You haven't had the full budget, but there's one particular film that you worked with, Dino De Laurentiis, and it's not your normal set of circumstance. So perhaps just tell our filmmaker audience what unfolded here, Bruce. Yes, because, you see, Dino was one of those people who could, I mean, he didn't deal with committees or boards. He was just a one man. He made his own decisions. And, you see, I saw the play of Crimes of the Heart on Broadway and then I went, took a copy of the play to Dino in California and I said, this would make a wonderful film and we should get the playwright to write a screenplay. And he said... Uh, Okay, he said, well, let me think. And then he had the play translated into Italian and he read it that night and the next day he called me and he said, do we make of this film? <laughs> yeah. But you don't often get people like Dino De Laurentiis. Particularly back then because he would have been at the top of his game. Oh, yes. But he, he liked the play. He was, he was very astute. His English at that time was not very good either. I mean, he had to have a script translated. He had to have that play translated into Italian before he could really understand it. Then he made an instant decision and said, yes, we'll do it. You'd be pinching yourself, though, wouldn't you? You'd oh, be... this doesn't happen very often, you know. People like Dino and Richard Zanuck are pretty thin on the ground. Yeah, exactly. You're quite tenacious when it comes to projects. You're quite driven because I understand Ladies in Black which you made recently, just a few years ago. I, I believe that the film took you 23 years to make, is yes, that right? Yes, it did. Just as well I got some other jobs in the meantime because it did take us a very long time to put it together. But actually, it was much the reaction that I got with both Tender Mercies and Driving Miss Daisy, which was that finance people would say, but it isn't about anything. They really see drama in terms of big events, you know, cataclysmic events, something amazing is happening. Whereas a lot of drama, in fact, most drama, is small moments. The delicate relationships that mean a lot to the participants. You don't have to have world-shattering events for it to be dramatic. 
Yeah, I agree. And as mentioned earlier, you have directed some A-list actors who are all different in their own personalities. You mentioned Tender Mercies. Now, that's a film that you directed back in 1983. Does it seem that long ago? Yeah, it was a long time, 40 years ago, wasn't it? And starring one Robert Duvall, which we've talked about. Now, the film got you an Oscar nomination for Best Director. It was a film that Robert Duvall was also a producer on, and I believe you had mixed experiences with him. Tell us a little bit about that <laughs> relationship, because it's well, a good Duvall, one. Duvall was a very strange character. He'd acted in a hell of a lot of films, but it was very funny he was... He didn't really understand anything about film technique. He had really no idea. I mean, once we were shooting a scene and he suddenly stopped and I said, well, what's wrong? And he said, those lights outside the window, why are they there? And I said, the lights, they're lighting the scene. And he said, but the, the daylight is coming through the window anyway. Why do you need the lights? And I said, well, the daylight's not strong enough for us to get an image on the film. I said, it's supplemented. It'll look real on the screen, but it's it's a movie. And, I mean, he would often ask rather strange questions like that. You think, he's made like 60 or 70 films. Doesn't he know all this? <laughs> he, was, he was very odd. And then you had a particular scene that you wanted to shoot. I think it was in the golden hour as the sun was setting. Tell us a little bit about what happened oh, that next. Was, yes, that was typical of him too. We had to go right across Dallas to shoot a scene of him coming out of a bar. I had worked it out. The ideal time to do it was sunset. So he's coming out of the bar at sunset. I didn't want it to be dark. I wanted it to be a bit of light in the sky. And so I said to him, look, Bob, because of the schedule, he had a caravan which was about 70 feet long. I said, we can't get across Dallas in the peak hour traffic with your caravan. And I said, we have to, you have to forget the caravan. And he said, well, what do you want to do? I said, I want you to get in the car with me and we will drive across so we're there in plenty of time to get the shot. Oh, no, he said, I've got to take the caravan. <laughs> I said, why? We're only doing one shot and then we're, um, we're finished for the day. And he said, oh, I don't see why you want to do this. <laughs> and I said, Bob, I'm trying to make the best film I can for a film that you're playing the lead in, in a great role, and you're also the producer. I said, the scene is going to look better at sunset than in the dark. But anyway, he wouldn't do it. He insisted on taking the caravan. He didn't get there till like 9 o'clock at night. And uh, we shot it in the dark. He was just weird. <laughs> oh, man. that's If there's ever a moment when an actor is also the producer, to separate those two things out and say, for goodness sake, put your producer's hat on. It's your producer's moment. The one moment I need you to be a producer, step up, let's go. Yes, I think a lot of them, you see, they use the producer thing. It gets them a bit extra money. And they usually don't do anything at all. In fact, they invariably don't do anything at all, except occasional throw a spanner in the works as Duval did. And, Bruce, you got to work with Sharon Stone after she did Basic Instinct and also Casino, and which means that she was probably at the height of her career when she did your film Last Dance. So what was she like? What was that experience, given, I guess, given the Robert Duvall moment that we've just talked about being difficult? I suppose you could be thinking, gee, I hope I don't have anything like that with Sharon Stone. 
Yes, difficulties with actors are actually pretty rare. They're usually very cooperative. Sharon was one of the nicest actors I've ever worked with. Tremendously professional. She was always ready to go. She was always on time. And uh, she's a very charming, (laughs) well-educated woman, rather refined. I love working with her. I'm sorry that the film wasn't really that good. And she came on it straight off this film she did with Scorsese, Casino, which was a, a fantastic film. And she gave a great performance. And Bruce, you watch a film like Two Popes starring Jonathan Price, who I think is one of the great actors for inhibiting the unspoken word, which we talked about earlier. Him and Anthony Hopkins had a great two-hander film with their performance in Two Popes. And of course, you also cast uh, Jonathan Price in Bride of the Wind. Yes, Jonathan Price in that film played Marla. I mean, Jonathan Price is a very, very remarkable actor. I would say if I had to make up a list of the three greatest actors in the world, he'd certainly be either one, two or three. He's a remarkable actor, completely and utterly convincing. And he has that knack of just being able to turn himself into the character, completely submerged into it, the same way Duval could do that too, was uncanny. Price was uh, certainly a very, very good actor to work with and very cooperative. And no matter what I ever wanted him to do, it always turned out better than I imagined because he really is so incredibly talented. All right, now let's bring in Peter James, cinematographer, into the conversation who has worked with you, Bruce, many times. Hi, Peter. Welcome to the film podcast. Hi, Craig. Nice to be here. Yeah, nice to bring you in at this point. Now, you've collaborated on a number of projects with Bruce as his DP, including films like Ladies in Black, Mao's Last Dancer, Double Jeopardy, of course, which we've talked about, and Driving Miss Daisy. How did that partnership evolve with you and Bruce? He sent me the script of Driving Miss Daisy. I just loved the script. Like from day one, I said, make me a founding member of the fan club. This is a wonderful script. After many sort of false starts and you know, difficulty getting the money and all that sort of stuff, Bruce put together this wonderful team. We had a wonderful time in Atlanta shooting it, albeit on a reduced budget. Was everybody expecting it to be the success that it was? Because Driving Miss Daisy really did sort of hit the right note. Yeah, well, it's absolutely gorgeous. Bruce's magic touch with the actors was fantastic. Like Jessica was yeah, brilliant. And Morgan, I thought, was unbelievable as, as Hoke. I don't know, I just, I just like Bruce's idea of the type of films he likes to make. And they're mostly films where somebody is triumphing over adversity, where the human spirit wins. The way he directed and the way he staged the scenes, I would normally be arguing with the director saying, oh, what about this angle over here? But Bruce always had a very clear idea of where he wanted the camera. And every time I did have a suggestion, Bruce said, oh, no, that, that, that won't work. Miss Daisy has to be angry at Hope because uh, otherwise nowhere for her to go to be his best friend at the end of the film. And he was right, of course. That was correct. You know, most directors rely on a cine to, to help paint a picture and elevate the storytelling, which isn't always obvious to some directors on how to visually explain a piece. And for me personally, the, the cine helps the flower to blossom, if you like. But it seems that you and Bruce were very much in sync with story 
And because Bruce knows what he wants, he's not really in that same vein of needing that cinematographer to really help sort of tell the story. He's got a very clear idea of how to do that. Well, he storyboards himself. The storyboards are hysterical. They're little figures, little stick figures. Sometimes they're saying the dialogue like cartoons. Well, he was a cameraman at one stage, and so he understands the camera extremely well. But that's the director that, that knows where to put the camera. The cinematographer, often they're not very good at that. You know, they, they could be very good at lighting or camera operating or doing all sorts of other things. But the coverage is, is so important from the storytelling point of view. After about three films, after we finished Black Robe, we were very much in sync with one another. Generally, all of this work was done in pre-production. And every film we've done, we've had a different photographic style because every story is different. Now, take me back to Double Jeopardy, because it's a big studio film, a couple of Aussies helming the project. It might not have been automatically assumed at the time that this film was going to blow up, but it was a box office success. What were some of the things, Peter, that you remember about shooting that film that stood out for you as a cinematographer from Down Under, collaborating with your mate Bruce? Well, you're working with Tommy Lee Jones. He walked in on one set and he saw a backlight and he said, you're not going to turn that light on, are you? I said, no, Mr. Jones. (laughs) (laughs) That was quite a tough film to make. I wanted to shoot it anamorphic and Bruce normally is not really keen on anamorphic, even though we've done several films in anamorphic since. And it gave the film a really big picture look. When it goes to TV, it all gets chopped off. Now that TVs are, are bigger, it's not such a sacrifice. Actually, talking of anamorphic, I watched Double Jeopardy last week. I hadn't seen it for, I don't know, 20 years. And of course, 20 years ago, we didn't have iPads. And I never do the whole punch-in thing on the screen. But I found myself doing it because of that anamorphic and because it's just a small device that I was watching it on. But you don't plan for that when you're making a movie back in the day because these devices just don't exist. But it's a good point that you make about television screens because they are so much bigger now. You can sit in front of a 65-plus inch screen and the thing just plays out pretty much the way it would in a cinema theatre. A couple of years before we'd photographed Paradise Road up in North Queensland and Phuket, we shot that in anamorphic as well, where we used a really a big range of lenses, everything from a 600mm to a 40mm. And I think we, we brought some of that to Double Jeopardy as well. We used some quite long lenses, not as dramatic as it was on Paradise Road. And Peter, I want to ask you, because I think you're a bit of an authority, I saw something somewhere about you talking about HDR and some of your thoughts and thinking around the actual television sets now, because the NITs, and I've spoken about the NIT rating on these TVs, at some stage they think that the NITs might even get as high as 20,000 nits, which means (laughs) that, as I've said in previous podcasts, you might as well be staring at the sun. Where's where's the light and shadow? There is none. Is that a bit of a worry for you uh, as a cinematographer where when you shoot something and then you see it on these devices like these high-nit television screens? The cinematographer has to be involved in in the grading you need to do a high def grade and a, a standard def grade as well. 
So, see, some films, you don't want the blacks to go on forever. You want, if you're doing a, a mysterious film where you want the shadows to fall into blackness quite quickly, then you really have to build that in so that the television doesn't keep digging into the, into the black areas. Likewise, on the highlights, which is probably not as big a problem because most people rather like the highlights have definition in them. We've got to put a mask in the print somehow or other in the delivery so that it's what the authors want. It's what the director and the cinematographer want the film to look like. Otherwise, it'll just be very flat. Bruce, what do you have to say? You've been sitting there very patiently and quietly. Yes, <laughs> I didn't want to interrupt, of course. The, the thing that I liked so much about Peter's work was that um, the lighting is so incredibly skilled. Everything looks fabulous. And he's quite right. The photographic style is different on different films. It is true that a lot of cameramen light much the same, no matter what the subject matter is. You can always pick it and think, oh, this is shot by so-and-so because that's the way he always does it. But Peter's very careful to see what the film is about, when it's set, what the period is, uh, and which is the what sort of dramatic lighting is going to enhance the story. So it's usually different. And you never want to repeat yourself anyway because that's pretty boring, right? It is boring, yes. You don't want to do it. I mean, we always sit down and then discuss how it's going to be. And he's always full of ideas. With Daisy, I mean, he was incredibly careful because the film covers quite a long period of time. I think it's over 40 years. We did it without ever putting a date up on the screen. But you always know that years have passed because it somehow looks different. It was very subtle, but the change in lighting or the use of lenses or the use of filters or a combination of all of them, the change of that told you time had passed. And Peter worked all of that out. Well, I remember Dick Zanuck looking at the first shots we did, which was the first opening shot of Jessica putting a hat on in the mirror before she goes out shopping. I'm photographing an 80-year-old woman and I've got to make her look at least 20 years younger. I had my mother's hairnet, a pink chiffon hairnet on the back of the lens and fog filters and, and smoke in the room and all this stuff, black nets on the front of the camera, like you could hardly see anything. And it took me ages to light it because I really wanted her to look absolutely beautiful and young in these first shots. So I said, if I don't get her looking young now, this will not be convincing for the rest of the film. Yes, he's right, because she was in her 80s when we made the film, but she had to look as if she was ageing from about 60 to about 90. I remember Dick Zanuck pulling Bruce aside at the first night's uh, dailies. He said, oh, Bruce, is it always going to look so foggy? Bruce said, oh, look, he's got a plan. Don't worry about it. It's all, he's explained it to me. It's all fine. He, he trusted us. He always took the attitude, well, you're directing it, Peter's shooting it, you guys do it. Sometimes he'd say to me, are you sure that this is the right way to go with this? And I'd say, yes, I think so. Going back to Double Jeopardy, if you had your time over again, no doubt there's always limitations on different films. Is there anything with Double Jeopardy, if you got your time over again, that you thought, gee, I would have loved to have done that slightly differently? Well, I suppose some of the action sequences, I would have liked to use some of the new new gear that we have now, which is remote heads that are very stable and drones. Like we didn't have anything like that. You wanted an aerial, you had to have a helicopter. You know, and if you wanted to stabilize the horizon, you had to get one of those sea tripods to um, stabilize the horizon. They're only just starting to experiment with that sort of stuff when we were filming. So 
the first four or five films we did didn't record any video. We never had that sort of playback thing you've got on the set now. Actually, it was a real pain in the bum because at night you had to turn up often for an hour or two hours and look at the dailies. Yeah, which is the only way you knew what you got. Bruce used to stand next to the camera with a, a pair of Zeiss binoculars and look at the actors and I'd say to him, you're only 15 feet from the actor there. You know, does that put them off? He said, oh, no, they love it. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was the reason for that, Bruce? Well, we were often shooting shots closer than I was, you see. So it was, I knew that the nuances of behaviour would pick up on the big screen, but I couldn't see them from standing by the camera. So if I watched through binoculars, I didn't miss any details of their performance. You, you bring up an interesting point because Quentin Tarantino, he doesn't look at the monitor at all. He's right there with the actors just to the side. I don't know how he does that because I guess for me, I've always had that technology of utilising the screen. I, I can't actually stand there and watch the actors. My brain wants to see what the finished product is going to be when it's outputted at the other end. I have to watch the monitor all the time. Yeah. yeah, I might watch a rehearsal just to check the composition or to check the movement of some background or something, but I, I just watch the actors during the take. To actually direct looking at a monitor, I think, is really a nightmare. I wouldn't do it. But I, I work with most actors. They can't direct the actor in person. They have to direct from the monitor, and that's, that's the normal these days. Great chatting to you, Peter. Thank you so much for coming on to the film podcast and contributing to talking and reflecting, I guess, back on some of these uh, these films that you guys have done. Well, thanks very much, Craig, for having me. It's been wonderful. Before we go, Bruce, two degrees of separation between you and Trump. So how do those two connect up? Well, that was very strange. I was working in Canada and I making a film in Canada and I had to go down to do a few shots across the border in the U.S., and when I got there, they looked at my visa and said, well, this is cancelled. And I said, why? And they said, did you go to a film festival in Iran about four or five years previously? And I said, yes. And they said, well, you can't into America if you've been to Iran, Mr. Oh. Trump's regulation. And I said, well, the film festival was a big international festival. There were American films in it and there were American filmmakers there. I, I said, have they all had their visas cancelled? can't come home. Anyway, the guy said, we don't know anything about that, but you can't come in. Anyway, it took me a few years to get my visa back. Wow, that's crazy. I, mm. I mean, considering all the days, all the film days that you have been in America, <laughs> not to mention all of the pre-production, ah, man. The festival in Tehran was an international film festival. So what is coming up next for you? Well, the one I'm concentrating on is a, a wonderful script by David Williamson called Nearer the Gods, which is about Isaac Newton. And it's a wonderful bit of writing. It's amazing to me that no one's made a film about as charismatic and bizarre a character as Newton. But David's done a great job and the script's often terribly funny. And I'm hoping to do that in England next year. We're waiting for the COVID thing to let me get over there. Well, I will be keeping uh, my fingers crossed for that. Thank you, Bruce, for sharing some of your films with us and what is coming up on the horizon for you. I look uh, forward to going to more Bruce Beresford films. And thank you so much, Bruce, for joining us on the film podcast. Thanks, Craig. Thank you very much. Been fun.
You've been listening to The Film Podcast with Craig Newland, your weekly podcast about all things behind the camera and in front of it. Until next time, have a great week. Thank you.